I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I know. Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. Michael Patton here in studio with uh, Tim and Sam. Hello, good Got morning. Us all back together morning. after a week, uh, last week of a little break. What did we do last week? Uh, last week we did a podcast on the 10 oh, yeah. essential books that we felt like every Christian should have. Yeah, 10 essential books. And um, uh, Sam, you I, missed out on that. Well, I plan on contributing a little blog post to, of my own 10. So, Oh, uh, did we? Did you do 10? No, I didn't. Oh, you saw the blog post. I though, saw right? them, though, and I all thought right, I need to do that, too. I, I need to correct them. I need no. to put my foot out there and clear the water that's muddy. Well, it's amazing how much criticism we've gotten over that from other people as well. I mean, a lot of appreciation. Yeah, yeah. A lot of appreciation. A lot of people saying, those thank you for doing that. We wanted you to do that. But also the criticism you can get. Well, later, like, and we just knew that we were going to get it because whenever you say, here are 10, it means that you're leaving out tens of thousands. Yeah. And so you just got to dive in and do it. Got to do it. All right. Well, we're uh, diving in today and continuing on our um, our broadcast on uh, Calvinism. Yep. Invitation to Calvinism. Before I get there, I, I just want to ask you guys, we've been talking a little bit about books recently. Sam, what are you reading right now? Anything particular that stands out? Um, I'm reading um, uh, Stephen Prothero's book, God is Not One. He's the professor of religion at Boston University. Hmm. And it's, um, it's a fascinating uh, book because he argues, although he's not a Christian, not a professing believer, but he says that this idea that all religions are one, this desire for unity, and that they ultimately uh, are aiming at the same goal, getting to the same God, is absolute nonsense, and it uh, is destructive and dangerous. Hmm. So contrary to the politically correct approach, um, he's, uh, here's a non-believer uh, arguing for the fact that uh, all these religions have profoundly differing conceptions of ultimate reality. Um, and we need to acknowledge it. It's very good. So well, good, um, good. Ruin that. I'm reading against pluralism by a, uh, someone you wouldn't think would be uh, a non-pluralist. Right. I know. Yeah. Um, I've been reading for a while now, but this is one of those books I pick up and read just a little bit every once in a while. But it's uh, called "Mistakes Were Made, but Not by Me." Uh, again, this isn't by a Christian, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's very interesting because it it, it kind of lays out something I think that we all already know, but our memory doesn't serve us too well so much. And uh, oftentimes our memories are very selective and how we, whenever we recall events, whenever we're trying to tell stories, we will usually recall our version of it to some degree. However, it's very interesting to me because the the version that we do recall is substantially true, mm-hmm. even though the details maybe we leave out some or change some slight bit here and there. But good good book, poli- political book mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because it's, it's talking about mistakes that politicians make and how mm-hmm. they bring up their own versions of the story and their own versions of reality, not conservative politics or anything, but interesting book. I'm also reading uh, The Great Awakening by Thomas Kidd, a Baylor University professor. It's very yeah. good. Good? Why? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm fascinated with The Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, anything hmm. to do with uh, revival in America. 
very well, good. Cool. I actually went right now. I'm reading a book that is actually a reread, and it's a Pilgrim's Progress. Right. So I just started that on Monday. Taking uh, your own advice. I took my own advice. I was that at, one of your ten? It, it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and looked at my list, and I thought, well, it's been a couple of years since I've read that, so let me pull it off the shelf again and give it a go. And I've been thoroughly enjoying it. I feel like it's the first time I've ever read it. So. <laughs> no good. All right, well, we're going to continue, guys, on Calvinism, Invitation to Calvinism. Uh, That is the series we've gone through, I think, three broadcasts thus far. Last time we talked about total depravity. That was the subject we left on. I think we, I think we covered total depravity. Yes. And uh, I think we're going in the order, at least, of the tulip that we introduced beforehand. Now, one of the things, this, this series so far, guys, has gotten a lot of traffic, uh, a lot of comments, a lot of people interested in it, a lot of people that are listening to this, a lot of people listening to Theology Unplugged for the first time because of these broadcasts. So there's something that I want to do. I want to pause for a moment okay. because we have had some conversation about this uh, from people, either through emails or up at the blog and things that I can just see going on. And we, we've labeled this a, an invitation to Calvinism. And, folks, that's what it is. I mean, each one of us sitting here are Calvinists. At least we would consider ourselves Calvinists to some degree. A lot of people are saying, okay, is this a Calvinistic-type promotion broadcast? Is that what you guys do? Is that what Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is? And I want to pause here for a moment and just say something, because I know that if I want to start controversy, there are three things that I can write on. There are three things that I can speak on. Number one is women in ministry. Okay. Number two is creation evolution stuff. And number three is Calvinism. Those are the top three, hands down, period. No, Nothing even comes close. And so I think we have to qualify ourselves every once in a while while we're talking about this, because... Otherwise, people, Sam, and you've probably been in this before, will see you in the middle of a very polemic debate and you contributing in that circle of polemics rather than trying to do, as I think we're trying to do, be gracious in our explanation and in our invitation to Calvinism, but keep things in perspective. Now, one of the things that I want to say and I want to talk to you guys about is when we're talking about Calvinism, we are contrasting this with other systems of theological thought. One of the primary systems that Calvinism is often put up against, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is Arminianism. Mm -hmm. Now, let me just ask you guys, when we talk about Calvinism, are we saying that all non-Calvinists are not Christians? Absolutely not. No. In fact, a good illustration of this is that at our church at Bridgeway this last Sunday, we had uh, our newcomers lunch for new folk, and I opened it up for questions that they could ask anything they wanted. And one of the first questions, a lady raised her hand and said, if I don't believe in election the way you do, will I feel welcome and received here and be able to participate in the life of this church? And I said, absolutely, yes. I said, I, I said, my view is well known, and I do take a stand on that, and when I come across it in Scripture, I will teach it and preach it. But uh, we do not make that issue a test of orthodoxy. Uh, we do not look upon that as a dividing line between Christian and non-Christian. Uh, some of the most passionate, Christ-loving, God-glorifying, devoted, sacrificial, humble believers I have known were classical Arminians. 
Uh, and I'm, I've worked with them for years side by side in churches and um, taught with them at Wheaton College. Um, I have friends today who embrace that view. So I, for one, would most assuredly say, no, we're not in any way hinting or suggesting that non-Calvinists somehow are outside uh, the boundaries of uh, the true Christian faith. Okay, and, and so Tim, very clear, not outside the boundaries of the cr- true Christian faith. How about we just say, well, maybe they're Christians, but as some people would put it, <laughs> they're just barely Christians. Is that? Do you all think that's a good way to put it? No, I would totally disagree with that. I would say that, that yes, we are g- giving an invitation here, but we're recognizing that these are issues and there are issues at play here that we'll be talking about in this broadcast as well, that people can respectfully, intelligently, like Sam was saying, uh, disagree, and we're going to be brothers who are going to walk together. So I, I, I would in no way question that they're just barely getting into heaven just through the skin of their teeth or anything, but to say, no, they're going in just the same way that, that I am, Lord willing, and uh, and that they're, uh, there isn't anything I would say that I would feel like they're a half-breed of a Christian or anything. And and also to add to that, and this, this uh, surprises some of my fellow Calvinists when I say it, because I don't know that they've ever given it much thought. Virtually every Arminian believer that I have known is as adamant about the fact that we are all getting into heaven solely by the grace of God. Because most Calvinists, I say most, maybe that's an overgeneralization, many Calvinists have it in their minds that Arminians embrace that view because they want to hold on to a measure of their own autonomy and their own works, and that somehow uh, entrance into heaven is a uh, is due to a combination of divine grace and human free will. I don't find Arminians affirming that. Now, it may well be that their system logically and necessarily entails that idea, but individual Arminians are adamant, at least the ones that I know, that no, I am, I am saved wholly and absolutely by the grace of God. I am, it's not by works. It's not by my own effort. It's not by my own act of free will. I am saved solely by the goodness and the grace of God. Now, whether or not the system of Arminianism will permit that conclusion is another matter, and that may be something we can talk about. But uh, Calvinists need to realize that Arminians celebrate and rely upon the grace of God uh, oftentimes as much as the most uh, strict and uh, zealous of Calvinists do. Uh, I, I don't know if this is a true story. You know, It could be one of those apocryphal stories that go around a lot, but I've heard it a lot. I love it. Just tell it with confidence. Okay, I'll, I'll tell it with confidence, deep voice, and a British accent. And then it'll be true for sure. There we go. Okay. Um, John Wesley and uh, George Whitfield were both circuit preachers, were both evangelists during the Great Awakening, and one was an Arminian and one was a Calvinist. John Wesley was the Arminian, who, who is today still celebrated by many Arminians as a, as a great Arminian, even uh, a uh, one who advanced their thought in some uh, ways. Uh, George Whitfield was a Calvinist. And I, I heard this story that uh, George Whitfield was one time asked whether he thought because of the controversy here between Calvinists and Arminians. Do you think that you will see John Wesley in heaven, was the question. And uh, he said, no. <laughs> Pause there for a moment. No. Uh, but what do you mean, 
you think he's going to be in hell? He said, no, he will be so close to the throne of Christ that I won't ever be able to get to see him. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I I don't know if that's true or not. Sam, is it true? Uh, Let's pretend that it is. Okay, let's uh, go for it. It probably is. Yeah. <laughs> That's the attitude we want to express either way. I mean, there are many people out there that I know that are Arminians. One of them that stands out in my mind is Paul Copan. Mm-hmm. He's an Arminian. He's a part of our ministry. He blogs with us. See him um, most of the time whenever I go to the ETS meetings. That's about the only time we get to meet up. But one of the most kind, gracious, Christian, love, loving people that I know. Uh, incredible spirit, and he's one of those people that you would say, do you think you'll see him in heaven? And that would be my answer. I mean, I hope to get to see him because he's going to be so close to Christ. Mm. So that putting it into perspective here as we continue our conversation, I think it's so important um, just so that we are not placed in this circle of trying to say that non-Calvinists and those people who do not believe the way we do are somehow barely Christian or just kind of Christian or not that good of Christians. It's like being barely pregnant. You are either <laughs> regenerate and justified by faith in Jesus or you're not. Yeah. So, yep. And Calvinists and Arminians are equally regenerate, equally mm-hmm. justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, having said that... We are giving you an invitation. I mean, this is something that I think we would sit here and say, okay, somebody come up to us, okay, so you're saying it's not important. No, not really. We're not saying it's not important. We want to do these broadcasts off that. But but just to keep it in perspective, we do think it's important, though. We do think that there are th- that not only is this what the Bible teaches, but there are going to be implications upon our lives and the way that we think and should be implications on the way that we live and treat other people because of what we believe here. Mm-hmm. Now, um, uh, what we talked about last time, total depravity, and we've been following the system that is called uh, TULIP. Uh, TULIP, briefly, once again, Sam, if you would explain TULIP. TULIP. Uh, simply as a way of uh, remembering the the five issues over which Calvinists and Arminians primarily uh, debate. T standing for total depravity, uh, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P. P has either been, uh, people have referred to it as perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints, depending on whether you're talking about what we do or what God does. We persevere because God preserves us. But those are the five points. Last week we talked about um, uh, total depravity. And I think it'd be best just to sum that up as saying we believe that we have been infected completely by sin, even though in our own person it doesn't mean we act out that infection. It doesn't mean the symptoms are fullest uh, to their fullest degree in every person. We are sinful. We are born sinners. We are born at enmity with God. We are born in a corrupted state and a depraved state, and our will has been affected. And by the way, very important for people to know this, uh, well-informed Arminians, um, and you know there are some Calvinists who aren't well-informed, but well-informed Arminians believe in total depravity. Total depravity is the one point of the five points of Calvinism that most Arminians affirm. John Wesley did, James Arminius did, Roger Olson, a contemporary Arminian theologian does, 
They affirm the corruption of human nature that in our fallen state, conceived in sin, brought forth in iniquity, uh, in our natural uh, condition that we are utterly ill-disposed toward God, hostile in our heart, inclined toward evil, and would persist and remain in unbelief were God not to intervene in grace. So even Arminians affirm that. Then whether or not we get into this later, it'll be up to you. But uh, they, in essence, say the reason why um, free will becomes a factor in their system of theology is because of the doctrine of prevenient grace. According to Arminians, there is at some point, and you, you can't pin them down. I've, I've asked many Arminians, when is prevenient grace imparted? Uh, and they don't know, but Arminians believe that God, um, in a sense, neutralizes the effects of total depravity and restores in every single human being uh, the freedom of will similar to what Adam had before the fall. So it's not that they deny total depravity. They affirm it, but then they say that God graciously enables each individual uh, to act in freedom so that they can respond to the gospel uh, when they are confronted with it. And you said Roger Olson is uh, uh, one of the contemporary Arminians that holds to this. Mm-hmm. Not only holds to it, he's having continually, I see, as I see through his writings and especially through his blog since his blog started a few months ago, he's continually having to inform his own people and mm-hmm. uh, people on the other side that Arminians do believe that we are completely corrupted. And you're right, provenient grace is going to be the only answer to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Provenient grace may well be the single most important issue that um, that differentiates Arminians from Calvinists and whether that doctrine can be substantiated from Scripture. It really is a, a decisive point. And it is because of what we're getting into now, because if we have established that we are broken, that our will is broken, that you and I on our own, and this is what we're talking about from a Christian belief standpoint, you and I on our own cannot come to God. We are in bondage, not only to our sin in the sense that we sin and do things wrong, but in our rejection of God. Mm-hmm. We're in bondage to a willful state of enmity. We are his enemies, and we cannot be released from that, folks. Both Calvinists and Arminians agree so far. Okay? Nothing we can do. Left to our own, we don't have the ability. Now, some people believe that we have the ability on our own. And we, we call this Pelagianism. Mm-hmm. I think there's one thing in all of theology that you don't want to be called, and that's a Pelagian. Or even a semi-Pelagian. Or a semi-Pelagian. <laughs> uh, Pelagianism holds out hope for man. It says, well, man may need a little bit of help. You know, like uh, God has created you, and you're, you're broken a little bit, but, but you can do your own part. You do your part. God does his part. Meet halfway. As the old saying goes, God cast a vote for you, Satan cast a vote against you, you hold the deciding vote. Yeah, that's, no, we, we often, today we'd put that if we were tweeting that, fail, you know, mm-hmm. that's theology fail because that's a semi-Pelagianism there. And, we, and I would just say, you know, the question earlier was raised, are non-Calvinist Christians, in other words, are Arminians Christians, I would say yes. In case you just heard that, uh, Tim forgot to turn off his cell phone and it was uh, ringing. But we'll We're ignore unplugged. that. I guess. Yeah. Um, 
I, I would uh, have some serious reservations about uh, semi-Pelagians and Pelagians uh, in terms of their uh, relationship with, with God. Mm. Uh, there is such a fundamental denial of the necessity of the inward power of grace to save and convert the human soul uh, among Pelagians that I wonder if they have any grasp of the gospel. And just so you all know, Pelagianism comes from the word Pelagius, who was a British monk of the 4th century, 4th and 5th century, uh, battled a little bit with a man named St. Augustine. But he, he essentially it became named such because Pelagians would uh, believe that in our natural ability we have – we don't necessarily need grace. Well, they would say we need grace, but they define grace in an entirely different way. Hmm. Pelagians and semi-Pelagians say that grace is an external influence, but not an internal power. You know, we believe that the grace of God is the very presence of the Spirit of God working in our minds, our hearts, our wills to uh, enable us to draw us to faith in Christ. Pelagians would argue that grace is very much like um, reading the law. It's a, it's an inducement. It's an external encouragement. Um, a good illustration that that I, I've oftentimes used. It's like a, let's say you're competing in um, uh, a marathon, and uh, you're running. And um, according to the Pelagian, grace is like a coach who trots along on the sidelines, yelling encouragement to you. Come on, you can do it. Try harder. You know, pace yourself better. You know, remember what you've sacrificed to get this far. Grace functions only in an external way. It doesn't actually enter into the runner uh, to empower him or her and energize their body to do what they know they have to do. So it's the difference between grace as an external uh, example, influence, exhortation, as over against grace as an internal power that actually energizes the human heart. Hmm. That would be the fundamental difference. Naturally, people are thinking uh, whenever you talk about Pelagianism or this uh, idea that we we can do it on our own it is this this idea of self motivation, this idea of inherent capability, and that's the thing that we've got to uh, everybody that is listening to this. You got to understand when we're talking about from the Orthodox Christian standpoint, especially since you know 16th century on, one of the fundamental tenets that is going to be building that you're going to be building all your theology upon is that th- this idea of total depravity, we are completely helpless. We have no ability within ourselves. We are at the complete mercy of God even to call out for him because we don't want to. Mm-hmm. And once we have this, and this, this broadcast is kind of like a bridge broadcast to the next one, but once we have that situation set up, I think you have to ask the question is, okay, then, if we have no ability to even call out for God on our own, we have no ability, no inclination within ourselves to to turn to him away from our state of enmity, then how is anybody saved? That's a question. Mm-hmm. How is it that anybody is saved? And, again, we're going to have this issue of, okay, they've either got to have the ability restored in them and then make the choice, or God's got to come in and save them sovereignly. 
And this is this is exactly what Calvin is wrestling with as he is reading scripture and all people who have believed in total depravity before Calvin as well. This is what they're wrestling with is that I'm seeing scripture that's saying I am totally dead. Dead people can't do a lot. You know, no one seeks God. No, not one. All of these passages where it, it's looking like, well, I'm looking at this and wrestling with this and thinking, well, how do I get from A to B? How do, how do I do this? And, and this is the wrestling. I mean, this is why total depravity uh, comes up and why it's also been uh, the first thing that we talk about, because this has to be established before we start talking about the salvation of man. And another thing to keep in mind, uh, so people won't be misled, when we say that a person cannot um, believe of their own uh, will, given their depravity. We're not saying it's because they lack any necessary faculties of mind. It's not because um, their brains have been damaged. It's not because they lack a will. It's not because that there's anything necessary in the psychological um, um, experience of making a choice that somehow they're devoid of that. It means that their heart is at enmity with God. It's a disposition of heart, soul, mind, and will that simply says, I want nothing to do with God. I hate him. The very idea of him appalls me. I see nothing beautiful in Christ. I see nothing appealing in him. So it is an orientation or disposition of the heart in the very depths of our being. It's not due to some... Uh, again, psychological or cognitive defect. Um, it is, again, a simple uh, but very sinister hatred of all things that are good and spiritual and godly and beautiful. Well, let me ask one more question then before we end this broadcast. I, again, this is a bridge broadcast to the next uh, topic of unconditional election. But you want to be, so we say people hate God. That, that's a very strong – we know what hate looks like. You know, I mean you, you think of uh, somebody and you say, that person hates me or, or you, you have this sin of hatred within you towards someone else. You know what that looks like. There, there is expressions of enmity with this uh, individual or individuals. Uh, one country hates another and goes to war with it and is mm-hmm. continually fighting against it. Um, when we say people hate God, I, I, I've got a friend that I think of immediately that doesn't love Christ, doesn't know Christ, doesn't really, you know, Christ is not the issue, but he loves God from his standpoint. You know, God well, is my buddy. I pray to God. Oh, I pray to God every single night. And, and I'm sure he does, and I'm sure he thinks about God to some degree. How does he hate God? Well, your, the key phrase was from his standpoint, because the God that they say they don't hate and pray to isn't the God of the Bible. It's the God of their own fabrication, their own making, their own imagination. The God that all mankind hate is the God who's revealed himself in Scripture as infinitely holy, who requires absolute perfection, who calls for repentance, who says that all your deeds, all your works are as a filthy rag, who um, has provided a way in his Son and calls for faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. Uh, it's the God who is going to call all mankind to account and to judgment. It is this God who's revealed himself in Scripture that men, mankind hates. Um, but all people have their own notion of what constitutes God. And uh, as you say, there are probably a lot of people, maybe even some listening to this, who say, well, I, I like the idea of God. I, 
but I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Well, they're talking about a God other than the God as revealed in Scripture. So it's a it's an it's an altogether other deity that has been created in their mind that they have shaped in such a way that he becomes lovable to them. Hmm. But he's not the God who confronts us in the in the Word of God who's made himself known in Jesus. Yeah, and some people do that. Some people we have it's very easy to do to to create God in the image that you want him to be and then not hate that God, you know, <laughs> take away the characteristics yeah. of judgment, take create a lovable God. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and you can even call him Jesus sometimes, you know, and you can even say he's one who died on the cross and rose from the grave. I've seen that before, but the characteristics, the essential characteristics do not meet the God of the Bible. So you pick and choose. I mean, that's been from the very beginning. Part of our depravity is not only to pick and choose the gods that we want and, and find the ones that are the most lovable, but even within the Bible, pick and choose the scriptures that we like and that present God the way we want him to be presented and tickle our own ears. And at that point, we hate God and we love our God. Our fairy tale. Yeah. All right, depravity. We've set up depravity. We've set up a hatred. We've set up a, a condition in which we as Christians or we as people cannot find a way out of. We are leopards who can't change their spots. We, you know, Romans chapter 3, no one has done good, no, not one. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless. Uh, from head to toe, we are depraved as it expresses itself in there. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, the day we ate of the fruit from a human standpoint, all humanity died, their relationship with God was severed, we, we need something to happen as we lay in the graves of our willful depravity, and that is what we're going to talk about next, what happens. Okay, folks, until next week, thanks for joining us. This has been Theology Unplugged for Sam and Tim. This is Michael. Have a great week. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner, And for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.